welcome everybody to Radical Civility. My name is Ben Piccini. Um, laryngitis extraordinaire tonight uh, as, I, as I try and get through with my scratchy voice. Um, and I am really excited to have this conversation. So in just a minute, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. In fact, why don't we do this now? Um, why don't you each of you take a minute and tell me about yourself. Um, and specifically, tell me, I, I tell me one thing about you and a little bit about your background. And tell me one thing you're reading that you wish more people were reading or listening to that would make the world a better place if people were reading uh, that a little bit more. And I don't know what order is on your side, but why don't we start with Mark, and then we'll go to Megan, and then Jacob, and then, and then Tom. Okay, my name is Mark Duke. Uh, I retired two years ago from LDS Family Services after working for 38 years. Uh, 13 of those years, I had the opportunity of working in New Zealand and um, still have a soft spot. I know that uh, Megan has an uncle that served in New Zealand or, or a relation anyway. Um, I graduated with my uh, master's in social work at Eastern Washington University. I'm an LCSW. And what I'm reading right now is a book, and I'm, I'm even blocking on the name, but the author is Carl Hoffman. And you can read anything that he writes. He's writing about um, a couple of guys that spent lots of time in New Guinea and trying to stop logging. And it's just absolutely fascinating. He's a great writer. So anything by Carl Hoffman, uh, grab up and read. That's fantastic. I love it. And by the way, my mother is actually from New Zealand. Um, and so my mom and my grandfather and, and grandmother and uh, they my the story is that my grandfather met my grandmother when he was a security guard for the building of the hamilton temple oh wonderful um, or well i guess it was before that because he convert anyway i don't i don't have the timeline right but it's something about that it's great um, we'll so. touch base we'll touch bases ben that sounds great that sounds great all right megan my name is megan kohler um i live in utah i have three little boys and um I'm a stay-at-home mom. I write a fair amount, at least I have over the last year. And um, and let's see, you asked about what what we're currently reading. Um, so I'm I'm actually rereading a book. Um, this this is a book I would recommend to everybody. I've read it many times. It's called The Road Less Travel by M. Scott Peck. He was a, mm -hmm. a psychiatrist psychologist in the, in the his work was more popular in the 70s which makes it kind of countercultural today but i i find it really helpful fabulous thank you very much jacob we'll take you next and, and it looks like you have a, a guest uh, to introduce us to as well i do i've got my emma tonight my wife is out on a date with our six-year-old um my emma right here she's <laughs> Sweetheart, um, Jacob Hess. I, I am a dad, a husband that's finally learning how to uh, maybe be a better husband and father. <laughs> that's my most important identity. I am trying to be a better disciple too. I, I interviewed Francis Chan yesterday, who's a pastor that my wife and I love, and he said nobody reads the scriptures anymore. Everybody likes a good talk. Everybody likes a good sermon. So what I'm reading, I'm, what I'm enjoying is non-internet um, books in my hands. Like uh, I started the book of Jeremiah this morning. My wife and I are trying to read House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. We, we read about one chapter every couple of months. <laughs> like holding a book in my hand that's not some cute article someone put together online that's what i'm enjoying like those things called books in your hands so. <laughs> i've heard of those I've, I've read about them on the internet that's that's yeah. that's great <laughs> i see them in museums every, every right exactly yeah. well that's fantastic jacob all right tom yeah i'm tom stringham i uh i'm a phd student in economics at the university of toronto up here in canada i'm from calgary alberta originally um I'm married with three little kids. Uh, I've sort of been writing on and off about church topics and other things uh, since I got home from my mission, which is oh, nine years ago now or something. Um, and as far as what I'm reading lately, 
right now I'm reading uh, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, which is sort of this memoir uh, and book about, um, so it's by Daniel Everett. He's a, a linguist and he was a missionary at the time. He went to uh, this, this tiny little tribe in Brazil called Apiraha and studied their language, which is unlike any language that had ever been uh, encountered before and found that it you know, sort of defied the conventional wisdom about how human language works. And so it's a really interesting story. I, I got into it because I read another book uh, by Tom Wolfe, The Kingdom of Speech, which sort of was this polemic book about uh, linguistics. I've read a lot of Tom Wolfe's books. I quite like them, but yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Well, it's good to have all of you. My name is Ben Piccini, and I am a teacher education faculty at BYUI. Now is a good opportunity for me to say that I only speak for myself, not my employer, not for my church, not for my pet's former owner, right? Like it's just me, and I hope that I get smarter over time. Um, and at the same time, I think all of you would probably say the same. I also think it's really important that we have these conversations in part because I, I, I hope that I get better over time. I hope that in 10 years I look back and go, wow, I was really dumb. Um, because that means I'm improving, right? And I'm getting smarter. Um, and in terms of something that I wish everybody could read right now, it's the latest free economics podcast where they have Arthur Brooks come on. I love Arthur Brooks. I think he's great. Um, <clears throat> and in this one, he talks about how we cure our culture of contempt. Um, he asked the Dalai Lama um, how we're going to fix our problem with contempt. And, he, and the Dalai Lama turned to him and said, practice warm-heartedness. Um, and it's, it's basically a reflection on that idea. What does that mean? How does it look? How do we, how do we actually do this? Um, I think Arthur Brooks, so Arthur Brooks is actually a, a, a researcher of happiness, which I find delightful, um, but he also has done some really good work on how we can bridge differences and how we can disagree um, better instead of just less. Um, so I want to kick it off tonight by talking about a, a, something really quickly that is dear to my heart, and that is my home state, Utah. Um, I grew up there and I love it there. I think Utah is wonderful. And I remember one day in high school... <clears throat> A friend of mine was kind of ragging on Utah, and I joined in because that's what the socially acceptable thing to do was. And a friend of mine caught me off to the side. I can't remember who these people are. I don't remember faces. I just remember the feeling. Um, and somebody pulled me to the side and just kind of said, I really like it here. Why did you make fun of an entire state? And it just finally occurred to me that I, it was because that's what the crowd demanded of me, right? Like, that's just the socially appropriate thing to do. Like, of course, it's Utah. We make fun of it. But it wasn't just like we all kind of joke about our home state. There was an edge to it, right? And the edge was um, there's a narrative around Utah that needs to be shared. Um, and that is that Utah is actually terrible and it's awful and we complain about it. And that's just kind of how things go. Um, <clears throat> I think, Jacob, yours was the first piece that I read. Yours was the first piece that came out. And you, you were very blunt. It was like some people, you know, criticize Utah because they want to be thoughtful and criticize things that aren't perfect. And that's okay. And other people criticize Utah because it's a nice little uh, veiled punching bag for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and I think that that is wholly inappropriate. And I think if we have criticisms, then they should be leveled thoughtfully and deliberately and not as um, fake narratives. Um, I have repeatedly gotten into Facebook fights uh, over these issues over the years, many, many times. And I am not looking forward to more Facebook fights. That is not what I am saying. Uh, you know, just drop one of these articles. Um, but Public Square had this set of articles challenging some of the scary misconceptions that we have about Utah. And I think they were both delightful, they were well-researched, they were thoughtful, um, and I, I want everyone to read them. Um, to be honest, if I, was, if I was picking something I want everybody to read, this is it. This is what I want people to read. I want them to, to I, I was talking with friend, some friends of mine about this, and, and one of them said, oh yeah, I didn't like Utah when I was growing up, and then I moved back here, and now my blood um, I, I bleed green jello, right? Like I love all of the quirkiness and like, I think it's okay to like bring that back and to say, yeah, it's not perfect. Like that's okay. That's, that's normal life. That's how it's going to be. And yet a lot of the narrative is just bunk. And when you realize that it's actually a lot better. Um, so I'm thrilled with the work that has been done. I, I really like these episodes. Um, why don't we kick it off, Jacob, if you don't mind me um, pestering you first, um, what was your article about? Why don't you give us two or three big things and then we'll kind of ask you questions for a couple minutes. Sure. Um, I would just like to add and preface, it's probably true that everybody, like your hometown is a place that you, everybody kind of has these inside jokes about, you know, my wife is from New York and she, and grew up in Illinois and she has things to say about Illinois too. <laughs> so we probably all do it about, you know, kind of like we do about our family. It drives us nuts and we love them. I mean, I mean, I mean um, it's almost like a, 
I have permission to kind of a thing, right? Like, no, 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 yeah. it's okay for me to, right? Yeah. But- and, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong as long as that's, if it's actually out of fondness, I'm actually really okay with that. Yeah. And yeah, and there is another level of critique that Utah sometimes gets that I think does is in proxy for people that have something to say about the church of Jesus Christ. So um, there is a study in 2009 that came out that showed Utah had a relatively higher rate of pornography subscriptions on some unknown subscription site. And it was everywhere. And it still is everywhere. (laughs) And my friend Gary Wilson, this agnostic researcher who knows more about pornography pornography research than anyone, he he pointed that out to me one day. You know, most of the studies on religiosity and pornography don't agree with that study. And so he gathered them all. And and it's it's pretty fascinating to compare what the preponderance of evidence suggests with this single study that that went around like wildfire why because it uh people liked it they wanted to believe it it spoke to a narrative right like it 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 backed up priors of some kind and that's kind of terry warner probably what we all do we grab on the evidence that justifies the resentment people do have a lot of resentment about the faith if they walk away and so what better way to continue to justify that, but to grab hold on a study that backs it up. <laughs> so, um, well, can I yeah. can I ask two questions about this? Well, so I, I want to say I find this idea of majority minority um, interplay to be really interesting. Um, I grew up in Utah. I was a member of the dominant faith, um, and then I moved to Italy for three years, where I was very much not a member of the dominant faith. Um, <clears throat> and I think. Looking at it from both perspectives, has, it, it, has, it has given me something to, to think about for the every year since, right? Every moment of every year since. What it must feel like to not fit in with the majority is actually, that's, that's a really interesting topic to me. And those are stories that need to be told. At the same time, allowing that to flow into resentment, I think to your point is important. And I think that's, that's, that's something that we need to talk about. Um, if I remember right, this, this wasn't exactly a, you know, uh, a double blind, uh, you know, randomized control tile, trial kind of, of study. This was like an industry paper saying, hey, it looks like Utah has more subscriptions. Like, I think that's all it was. Is that correct? Well, he had an innovative method where he drew on subscription rates across the country. Um, there are a number of methodological issues with it. Um, I think the takeaway from my paper is that if we want to have an honest scientific conversation, we ought to look at the breadth of evidence. And this is true of all of our papers, really. And when you do that, you really have a hard, it's really hard to justify that, that idea that Utah has a really weird porn problem. The reality is we struggle with pornography like every state and like men and women across the nation. But most of the data suggests we're probably more protected, not less. Um, and then the same thing about addiction. There's this narrative out there. Part of the weird narrative about Utah is um, is that our problems stem from fear mongering and shaming about something that's not really addictive after all. And it doesn't really change the brain and it, it doesn't really have features like uh, chemical dependency. But that is just um, like it's just a lie. (laughs) I mean, just from withdrawal effects, there's 15 different peer-reviewed studies that demonstrate withdrawal um, with pornography and sex addicts, like withdrawal symptoms. There's studies that demonstrate habituation and tolerance development. And uh, I think all but one of the neuroscience studies show, uh, align with the addiction model. So the people that go around saying, well, you know, mental, you know, mental health professionals agree that it's not really addictive. It's like, well, if you take that one single study and ignore all 53 others, you know, but that's not an honest scientific conversation. So that was the work of Gary Wilson, who I, uh, I was, had the privilege of knowing. Um, and so it was fun to share that with, with people. If I'm understanding you right, they're, they're kind of competing views on, on pornography addiction 
And this is not, this is not a, um, how do I say this, a normative question. This isn't a moral question. This is an empirical question. Looking at the science, what does the science say? What does the research say? And just so we're clear, what does the research say it has its own set of problematic assumptions? Right, and I recognize right. that. But what does the bulk of the evidence support? And what you're saying is the bulk of the evidence supports an addiction model, that that's how pornography works, that there, there are, and, and so forth. Yeah, and what we do with that is a whole other question. I mean, telling an 11-year-old that you've got this addiction and you're an addict, there are ways we use that language that we can talk about being more sensitive. But the last thing that you want, if you want to hurt someone the most with an addiction, convince them that they don't have an addiction, really. And the problem is people who think they have a problem. And, you know, shame is the problem, not pornography. (laughs) It's like... Wow, if you want to set someone on the path to never finding freedom, that's the perfect formula. And I've seen people do exactly that. So I do think it's my interest is not just this academic thing, but helping support people and finding freedom from this stuff. And one of the first steps is to be honest about a real problem. And then, you know, finding your way out of it is a whole other story. So thanks. Well, and you, you stole two of my, I was, I was about to say, but we need to, it's, it's about how we need to have the conversation, right? Like we need to, we don't have to talk about it in terms of addiction. I think what you said was perfect, which is that how, what, where we go from there is a matter for therapy and it's a matter for therapists and to, to handle really, really deliberately and carefully. Um, and there is, I, and I, I can understand somebody saying, if you talk about it in terms of addiction, you may be reinforcing behavior rather than allowing people to feel like they have agency in overcoming uh, an issue or something. Yeah, yes, exactly. I think there's um, relevant points. The last thing I'll say is in the 12 steps, um, a lot of people find a lot of help just acknowledging I'm stuck and I don't have the willpower to just beat this, right? But I, I I'm going to get help from God. He, I'm going to trust God and turn my life over to God. And he's going to help grow this desire in me and this power. So um, it can be the start of a, of a liberation. So thanks, Ben. Thanks for, for featuring this series. It was really fun to work on it. With no, I'm excited it's... to hear what everybody else has to say. Fantastic. I'm going to, I'm going to turn to somebody else in just a second. I wanted to, to add, I am intrigued by something that you said about shame because it's something that I've been kind of kicking around in my head for a while. And that is, um, I think sometimes we try and get rid of certain emotions because they're unpleasant rather than asking ourselves whether they're well calibrated emotions and whether there's something underneath them that's worth exploring. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's something that, that is uh, a little bit more radical than we have time for tonight. So we'll come back to that another time. I'm not um, sure that is radical. <laughs> well, I, think it's, I think it's a, a thread through, through, uh, most of, of, uh, what we've all talked about. I know with yeah. Jacobs and mine particularly. Yeah. Well, and Mark, maybe we'll go to you next. I mean, let me, let me start just by saying, and, and I'll kind of reformulate this in my head and then I want you to tell me about your article. Um, I really do feel that there is, um, I, I had a student come to me uh, a few months back and she said, life is really hard right now. Um, I overspent and my mom is mad at me and I'm failing two classes. And on top of that, I have anxiety and depression coming back now. I said, okay, I, I could be crazy, but I think that, and she, and you know, she framed it very much in terms of emotional health. And I said, I, I do think you need a therapist and a counselor and I'm not one, right? So like, let's just be really clear about that. And at the same time, if I was failing two classes and my mom was mad at me and life was really like, I think the anxiety and depression are probably coming from really legitimate sources, right? Like this is, this is something like there are some life problems embedded in the mental health problems, right? That we can, we can attack both of these at the same time. Um, and that's, that's a complicated set of topics on its own. So anyway, that's, that's what I was referring to when I was talking to Jacob, but Mark, take it away. Tell us about, you can respond to that and then tell us about your article. Sure. Um, well, let me kind of start with the article and kind of branch into some of that is, um, the article is pretty narrow in terms of really kind of debunking what, uh, many of us had heard for years. And that was, is that Utah is about the most depressed state in the nation with the hidden assumption or not the hidden assumption but even the clear assumption but that the predominant religion has a big part to do with that i think it it started kind of a year earlier when there was a report that was given about the amount of anti 
antidepressants that people in Utah were using and how we were leading the nation. And then it was a year later that there was a, a Deseret News article and it didn't really cite research per se, but it, it uh, talked around kind of the issue to the point where it just made the assumption that, that we're the most depressed people. And, and the reason is some of these narratives that we've heard. And I kind of, it's not that I grew up with that, um, but it was something that we just assumed uh, in the mental health profession and just kind of worked around, you know. Yeah, we got a lot of depressed people. We've got a lot of clientele. We've got a lot to to do as far as that goes. And I, I think the narrower scope of the article was just to, to talk about how that, that really isn't true. Um, number one, just the, the statistics don't show it. The research doesn't show it. But also the, the predominant faith does a lot to help us in the inverse. In other words, help us not be depressed. And there's far more research and far more backing for that kind of uh, narrative is that uh, living your religion well and, and reliving, living your faith well has both a protective and redemptive form to it that can really be helpful. Um, you know, I had the same employer as you did, Ben, for, for many years. And part of my, and, and Jacob and I had many discussions about this, part of my big concern was that the structure of, of the church's counseling services was such that we we always had the mantra that uh, church leaders are our first clients. In other words, they would refer people to us to help with the mental health uh, issues um, in terms of when people were really struggling. And so I think what we did was just develop this, um, and I, and I hope I'm not strained from the thing, but I think it's it's getting to it. We developed this thing where if a bishop just said, for an instance, I've got all these depressed people, will you see them? And it just kind of solidified the fact that we had lots and lots of depressed people in the church. And it just wasn't true. They weren't coming in with the, the symptomology of depression. They were having a lot of life struggles, like you referred to, Ben, like your student did. They were having all these kinds of life struggles, but we were calling it depression and we were pathologizing it. And we were at the time um, classifying it so that people, we could get paid insurance money for treating it. And that's kind of the bigger uh, thing that this article kind of brought back to me was the fact that um, we we need to think about what we call quote unquote depression very differently for the most part and quit labeling uh, every one of life's difficulties as I am depressed, uh, which adds a label to it, then you have to treat it. And too often uh, medication is the primary source of treatment as opposed to looking at so many other healthy and positive things that people can do. And, you know, Jacob talked about a little bit about addiction and pornography. I think the message has been sent so clearly that depression is a brain chemistry problem to the point where then people can begin to say, because it's a problem that's inherent in my biology, I don't have a lot of control over it other than take these meds to deal with it. And that's that's a huge concern that I have. And uh, I, I mean, didn't... I Go ahead. Sorry, I'm going to be rude and interrupt just because it's it's something that I see so often. It's it's I cannot think of a better way to destroy people's agency. Oh, to completely absolutely. rob them of because <clears throat> I'll have students say it. <clears throat> I told them. Uh, in fact, we had this conversation um, in the last week. We talk about mental health for students for for the future teachers that I teach, and I tell them I say um, we all need to get better at recognizing the difference between good hygiene and having a cavity right? Everybody should brush their teeth. And if everybody brushed their teeth, we would have a lower rate of cavities. At the same time, when somebody comes to you with a cavity, you don't say, oh, well, I bet you didn't brush your teeth very well, 
right? This is not hard to understand. And yet what we've swung to is, you know, we used to do the whole brushing your teeth shaming thing. And now we're on the other side that goes, how dare you even mention brushing your teeth to anyone, you horrible person? Why would you ever (laughs) mention that? And it's like, guys, I think if everybody, you know, got outside, got some exercise, spent time in, in, in nature and, and, you know, did things that brought them a feeling of transcendence. If we did the things that the research shows helps, I think the number of cases we would have would go down drastically. That doesn't mean it would be zero. And that doesn't mean that if somebody is experiencing something, it's because of that some, you know, moral fault of theirs, we should still help them. But I think of all the people who could be helped by some of those basics that aren't being helped. And that drives me crazy. Yeah. That to me is not very kind or charitable. It's not. Well, and um, I just want to cite a little case study. I, I did a, an in-service for, for some of our staff a few years ago, and there was a case study talking about how drug companies had turned what was normal sadness in Japan into a malady that needed to be treated with medication. Uh, in Japanese culture, they had a, a term uh, called kokoro no kaze, which means I have a cold of the soul. Um, and it means I'm going through a bad week or a bad month or a bad time. So I'm suffering from kokoro no kaze, which was a normal part of life. You just work through it until the drug companies convinced them that there was a way of uh, medicating yourself out of this and turned it into uh, something that um, that it wasn't. And so yeah, we we could go on and on about that those kinds of issues, but I think the um, debunking the 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 Utah depression thing was pretty easy to do. I think it it just brings up all the other issues that we need to at some stage address and talk about and and uh, get there. And that that's what was good about this putting together this article for me. Let me just say something about you other. Uh, three that that wrote um it can be really easy in these articles to want uh in in kind of quote unquote defending the church as it were um to become defensive and you didn't these were beautiful articles which you defended a a a point of view and and some truths without being defensive and and I think that was the beauty of what I saw in in the as you looked at the the whole series in its entirety. Ben, can I yeah, say one thing? Can I say Please. one thing about? And I can you. see Megan just unmuted herself, so she's next. But go ahead. <laughs> Thank you for the kind words, Mark. I wanted to say, Mark and I have known each other for a long time, and it's lonely to have an alternative perspective in mental health when you're the heretic. <laughs> and I have not, no one has been a bigger support and um, encourager to me than Mark. And just to know that, well, if Mark Duke at LDS Family Services doesn't think I'm crazy, then maybe I'll keep going on. I'm so grateful. It was really fun to work with you in supporting the article. Um, I hope you're enjoying well, and it, and it was, too. And it was good, it was good to see good solid research and writing being done that backed up some of the things that see because a lot of this comes from a even a spiritual perspective um if anyone wants to read some good spiritual perspective on on this elder bruce hafen in his book the broken heart writes about this situation so beautifully but it was good to see um professional um Back up for the things you feel, yeah. yeah. I love Elder Hafen's work. That's fantastic. Megan, you've been waiting so patiently. Go ahead. No, I'm, and I'm enjoying the conversation. Um, a thought that I had um, about what you were saying, Mark, that I think kind of uh, applies to all of our pieces, um, is that I think because of the sort of like science, the scientism of our age, when we start talking about empirical findings, um, it's, it's, you know, as soon as as soon as a narrative comes along that has those empirical findings attached to it, the conversation stops. Mm-hmm. It's like we think that we found something so definitive that there's no longer any point in exploring yeah. it or talking about it. 
and you were you were talking about how one of the things that came through with um, writing this article is that you feel like now we can talk about some of these things more. And with something that's as serious as, as the topics that were particularly, you guys, I, I, mine's maybe a little less existentially fraught, but um, talking about addiction or suicide um, or sexuality issues, like it's so important that we don't get trapped into, into one particular narrative. Yes. Um, so with that, um, my um, piece was about body image and plastic surgery in Utah, and um, it was uh, it was actually brought to my attention by Jacob um, because beauty culture is something that we had talked about before. Um, I think that there are a lot of narratives about beauty culture in Utah, and um, I think that there are problems, just like there are. Um, in any culture, but the, the, this um, infographic and associated research snapshot that Jacob showed me had such clearly motivated reasoning that it just kind of begged you to like look look a little bit closer into the data. Um, and so, primarily you know, the bulk of, of the piece is spent just sort of going through some of the different claims and then talking about what the, the numbers behind them really say. And, the, you know, they don't, they don't say what, they, I don't think they say what the authors think that they say. <laughs> um, but more importantly, why this was important for me is because there was this um, underlying message attached to it um, that women who are influenced by a culture that embraces prioritizing family, um, that, that, that these women are somehow more susceptible to uh, body image issues. And, and so as we talked about earlier, that's kind of like a, a proxy attack on the church, on the church's teachings. Um, and I really wanted to push back against that because as a woman, I have, of course, faced um, a lot of pressure about image. And the one place where I have found relief from that is the teachings of the church. Um, I, that, that is somewhat separate from, from cultural, from the cultural aspect of the church, but, um, but they're also linked. And I, I wanted more than anything what I wanted to come through in that piece was just the idea that if you are concerned about negative body image, if you do want a more lasting sense of identity, then the best thing you can possibly do is invest yourself completely in the church's teaching. Um, so, so that was the overall goal. Um, and, and, and also, I, I just wanted to make sure that, that I just wanted to, to push back on this idea that higher education, that, that graduate degrees are such an unqualified good that any time a woman consciously chooses not to pursue those things in order to prioritize family, um, that she's somehow either being coerced or she's part of like a, a, a patriarchal um, culture, you know. As a, as a woman who has chosen to stay home, I just um, I really feel like I get enough negative messages about the, the decisions that I've made um, and about the the image that that projects to the world about me. And I I just I want us to just do better. I think it's fine to want to empower women. Um, to care about career and education. I just don't want to do so in a way that delegitimizes the choice to prioritize family. You know, I, kind of what I'm hearing you say, Megan, as you're saying this is, um, there's kind of this narrative of, of empowerment. Women should be allowed to choose their path. 
And then there's like a little asterisk above it that says, unless, and, and there's some paths that you, I mean, like, mm. except for those unless paths, she's right? she's a member of a religious community, in which case all of her motives become suspect. <laughs> we, we cannot have any, any traditionalism, any conservative values about family and child rearing. And, and to be clear, I, I, I really want to state this. I, one of the things I loved about your piece was that it was so even-handed, that it said there are problems with beauty culture. There are, like, we should talk about them more. We should address them. I will say for myself, the place I heard the most about how, how beauty is, is way more than skin deep was in my church meetings with my young men's leaders who were saying, look, that's not all that matters right? Spirituality matters and work ethic matters. And this is somebody that you're going to be waking up at 2am to change dirty diapers with. Like this is much deeper than just whether you're attracted to them, right? That was yeah. something that I got pretty consistently. Now I'm well aware that that doesn't make it any less, you know, there, there, there are still problems and I'm sure that people have had bad experiences. Um, but I, I, I think to your point, um, I think that there's, there's a lot of good. And, and in fact, I, I, I don't want to speak for anybody other than me, but I think that there are people who find a lot of relief from, you know, some, some very competitive um, kinds of feelings from a culture where they say, Hey, that's not the only thing that matters. Um, yes. And it's okay. If somebody chooses something, you know, if, if somebody wants to choose career, they should awesome. Great. We're, we're cheering for you. Have a blast. And if somebody chooses kids and family, that's okay too. And we should still be cheering for them just as much. Yes. And, and the truth is, I, I mean, even women who, who do choose to pursue um, career or higher education, um, and, and you know, it's, an, it's not as though that's not a culturally motivated choice either. It's not as though that there are these like new these these completely neutral um, cultures in which people are making choices, um, and so. I mean, I, I do think that there is a particular culture in Utah, and it, it does tend to value family. And for some women, that does mean um, putting off uh, career or education to some extent. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that there's something um, pernicious about that yeah. necessarily. And it doesn't mean that there aren't other kinds of pressures in, in other kinds of cultures too. Um, and well, I... Oh, sorry, go sorry. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm rude. I get excited and I interrupt. It's like when people are like, all of you sheep not thinking for yourself. I'm like, did you really just say that on Facebook? Where, where <laughs> you stole a meme from Facebook to tell me that I'm a sheep? Like, come on, man. Like you can do better, right? There's no such thing as, I, I, I like the way you put it. There's no such thing as a neutral culture. I'll stop interrupting and being rude. Please continue. No, no. Um, and, and so anyway, um, I won't go into the, the, the individual, um, fallacies or misconceptions, um, which the data, uh, you know, did, didn't support. Um, I just wanted to more share the overall point that I think that it, it, it is good for us to talk about the pressures that women face um, about image. Well, hold on. Um, I'm not going to let you off quite that easy because there is one that I actually want to hit on. So I, I actually had done a little bit of the research on depression and on um, the pornography usage. And I, I have some thoughts that I want to, you know, banter about in, in a minute, but I had no idea about the, the body image one. Um, and I thought it was like really obvious when you pointed out that there are, I think there's a, there's a pretty um, impressive school of plastic surgery to which people travel in order to get surgery because this is on like a destination surgery kind of list. And I was like, oh, yes. so yeah. And that's actually where a lot of this came from was like the number of surgeries in Utah is higher. Well, yeah, that's because there's a really prominent school where people go for plastic surgery. That kind of makes sense. That's not quite the same thing as saying that, oh, we have such a terrible beauty culture. It's a disaster, blah, blah, blah. Those two things are different. And I thought that that was a, like, that's not the only reason. And, and, and there's, there's, you know, there's more than that in the article, but that to me was like, oh yeah, duh, that's, that this seems obvious now. Well, and so in fact, I think that the number of plastic surgeons that are here and um, the, the amount of advertising that plastic surgery gets in Utah actually makes a stronger case for the, for the insulative effect of the church because um, one of the studies that we talk about in the piece is, the, is a 2017 survey that Jana Reese did and it was, it was specifically women in Utah. And they had um, a, a significantly lower you know, rate of 
of cosmetic procedures, surgical cosmetic procedures for LDS women living in Utah. Um, so not only, you know, is, is, is there more availability of plastic surgery and um, not only is it less expensive here and in some cases significantly less expensive in Utah, but even with all of that, um, Utah women are still less likely than women, you know, than, than nationally um, women to, to get plastic surgery. I find all of that fascinating. I want to be really, I want to be really clear about something too. In our in our piece, you know, Jake and I talked about this. We really did not want to say that there is anything wrong with women getting plastic surgery. That's not an inherently bad decision. Um, and the reasons for which people get plastic surgery are very varied. <laughs> They're very varied. Well, um, one of the things that you mentioned that I loved was like we think of even elective plastic surgery as just beautification when in fact a lot of them are, and I don't know how to put this well, but like, I, I think you just said it, right? The reasons people get plastic surgery are actually really varied and they aren't as simple and straightforward as just, I want to look pretty for the boys. Um, and that, that no, is, that is a all. real deep misunderstanding of what plastic surgery is mostly used for these days. Yeah. I, uh, I, I see Tom drooping off a little bit. I think, is it 11 o'clock where you are, Tom? That's right. Yeah, it's eleven out here. I just wanted to. Megan had all these other insights that didn't make it into the article. Um, I think we should actually add them still, Megan. But one thing I think would be fun to add. I love it when people use the billboard, the number of billboards as evidence that we have a problem. Um, and I, I, I find myself wanting to say, no, Ut Utahns aren't the ones paying for those billboards. <laughs> like there's this kind of cycle where if you have a lot you know facilities yeah they're inundating us with these billboards and we have the misfortune of having to at you know as if that was somehow evidence of like our uh, pathology because right. we love the billboards well and that's actually, most of us are disgusted <laughs> we, by hate them. Them. we don't like them at all but this is capitalism <laughs> i don't get to take down a billboard i don't like right like that's kind of how this works so I actually want to I want to pitch this to Tom because this whole time I've been like trying to keep my economist mouth shut. I'm not really an economist, just so we're really clear. Um, but like Utah has been like on the richest list for like 10 years. It has one of the best business environments in the country. Utah is well known to, to have a lot of wealth. And most of these are normal goods. Right. And so when people get wealthier, what happens? They consume more. Like, so like, to me, this is like even basic economic analysis is like, okay. So for example, Jacob, your article was not, was not, was about pornography usage generally, but this isn't about, there's a difference between saying somebody is paying for a subscription service and somebody just going onto YouTube. They only measure the subscription service. You know what that's really well explained by? People not being able to find partners because hookup culture is kind of dead in Utah, right? Or, or some such, right? Like there are a lot of alternative explanations that actually make a lot of sense, like that I would jump to way before, oh yeah, Utah definitely has a problem. It's like, well, okay. Or maybe what this is saying is that people like, you know, if you are wealthier, are you going to spend a little bit more on, on surgery in general? Well, the answer is as an economist, if it's a normal good, then yes. Right? And if people have a lot more money, then they're going to do that a little bit more than average across other states. Um, I think that's really obvious. So you've got substitution effects, you've got normal goods effects. And I think the biggest one that, was, that, that Mark was talking about was, well, we have to classify this as something because if we don't, then they won't cover it on insurance. And that's an incentive effect. And so like a lot of these are just, and, and now is a good time. I, I really, really want to hit this. I love my home state. If, if, if Utah is getting something wrong, we want to have that conversation earnestly and honestly and scientifically. No one here is saying otherwise. What we are saying is looking at it as, as objectively as we can, they, the things just aren't lining up that people have always said, the narratives just don't hold. And so if there's evidence that says that there's something that we can work on, let's work on that. I'm not, I'm not saying, oops, sorry, I'm not trying to, I'm getting excited, I'm moving my hands. Um, if that's what's going on, then we need to try and tackle it. I just don't see the evidence here. What I see evidence of is that this is narrative-based. Um, anyway, Tom, you can make fun of my uh, armchair economics here and then tell us about your article. <laughs> no, I, that's a good point. It, it would be normal goods. That's true. Uh, speaking of economics in Utah, uh, one statistic that isn't out there as much is that consistently Utah has the most equitable income distribution in the U.S. and followed closely, I think, recently by uh, Idaho and Wyoming. So uh, I think most of that's driven by family structure. So a lot of inequalities between family types as opposed to within. But anyway, so that's 
just another, you know, we don't hear about the, the good stats about Utah quite as much, but I have a total all... econ crash on Raj Chetty. And just so we're clear, um, <laughs> one of his, one of his articles, just for those listening, Raj Chetty did a, a research paper where he basically said, where's the best place for a little, for, for a young child to be born. Um, and it was very close to my heart because I grew up in Salt Lake city and I was currently, when, when it was published, I was working for Baltimore city, uh, public schools. Um, and his research basically said Baltimore City is one of the worst places um, for somebody to be raised. And Salt Lake City, the greater Salt Lake City area, was one of the best places. And again, it goes back to a family and, and a lot of other things. There is some, he mentions a welfare effect, right? That the church has welfare programs that, that em- emphasize, um, you know, doing everything you can and still being supported. That to me is really important. I will at some point stop interrupting people, but today, now is not that time. Go ahead, Tom. No, those, are, those are great points. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about my article, which was about uh, LGBT youth suicide in Utah. And this is maybe the most explosive of the topics um, we've talked about. I'm sure everyone listening uh, is familiar to some degree with, with the narrative. Um, I became familiar with it uh, late 2014. Somebody in my ward uh, asked me if I had seen this article where it, it had been claimed uh, in the Huffington Post, where it had been claimed that uh, Latter-day Saints had the highest rate of gay suicide in the country, um, which is quite a big claim, and then other claims as well, uh, particularly about youth. And so I, I looked up this article, and I, I started seeing this claim all over the place on the internet, uh, looked into it, and discovered that the kind of data that would be needed to make this claim didn't exist. Uh, we just didn't have any data that cut that finely. And uh, the data that did exist, you know, for example, on religiosity and suicidality, um, seemed to suggest that uh, this probably wasn't the case. Uh, and so I, I wrote a blog post on this back in 2015, I think early 2015. Uh, and that provoked quite a reaction, including from the person who had initially made the claim, but she did uh, clarify that she had misspoken, didn't mean to, to make such a specific claim. Um, and then this kind of kept happening that these claims would pop up. Uh, and uh, uh, so, for example, after the November 2015 um, policy change regarding uh, baptism of kids uh, with same-sex parents. Um, there's a lot of controversy, obviously, and uh, a couple months later, there was this claim going around that uh, I think 30 or 34 um, you, gay youth in Utah had uh, committed suicide in the two months after that change. Um, it, be- it became this very viral and obviously a very upsetting claim, uh, and understandably, people were alarmed. Um, but the Utah Department of Health had to come out. There's an article in the Salt Lake Tribune and say, this this isn't even possible. The, the total number of deaths from all causes uh, for all youth, gay and straight is smaller than this number that's been claimed. If there was a surge, we would have noticed it. We're watching this data closely. Um, and in the years since, uh, you know, Michael Staley, who works for the Office of the Medical Examiner, he's himself gay. He's not a member of the church. He's had to say multiple times, you know, we don't have evidence for this narrative. I get why people believe it makes sense, but we just don't have this data and it, it, it doesn't support this this narrative, but I think everyone here will agree. It's, it's hard to, to overstate just how pervasive this narrative was um, in the early to mid 2010s and, and to some extent since then as well. Uh, you know, you'd go any given day, you would see these claims that, um, well, it's no wonder that, that gay youth are killing themselves in droves. It's, it's no wonder there's an epidemic. And, you know, this kind of rhetoric is extremely harmful. It's killing people. These claims, which are extremely serious claims uh, and accusations that are being thrown out without justification and uh, without verification or any kind of sub- uh, substance to them uh, at all. But it was, it was very, uh, you know, gauche to point that out and to say, you know, where, where are the sources for this? Um, but over time, you know, there were enough uh, rebuttals and enough, um, you know, instances, incidences of data being fabricated that I think the narrative, at least among the more sophisticated critics of the church, um, they, they stopped making these, these claims quite so much. Um, you definitely still hear it, but, uh, but it's, it's lost a lot of its power. And uh, the reason I, I wrote this article, um, and actually it was just a coincidence, I didn't write it for this series, but just the timing worked out great. So I was glad that it, uh, I was able to, you know, to do it with these other articles. But uh, there were a couple of new studies that had, have popped up um, using this, this recent big uh, representative data set collected by the state of Utah, uh, survey data set of middle school and, and high school youth. Um, and the findings are really striking. Um, so they ask about suicidality, religion, um, everything we're interested in. And the, the punchline is basically that uh, LGBT kids who are members of the church are only about half as likely as uh, LGBT kids who are not members of the church or who, who don't identify as Latter-day Saints 
um, to show suicidality in terms of suicidal thoughts, plans, uh, and attempts. Uh, this effect, this, which is big and statistically significant, uh, persists even when you include demographic controls. Um, so this is really a striking finding that cuts you know, close to the heart of this narrative and makes it very implausible. Uh, and much of the, the, uh, of the gap is accounted for by family structure, family relationships, um, less substance abuse among Latter-day Saints. Um, but I mean, there are some findings, and even when you dig into the, the data, almost everything points to this, uh, points in the same direction. One of the findings I found more, most interesting was in the depression models, uh, after you include all the controls, including being bullied, including you know, substance abuse, demographic controls, um, uh, there's an interaction effect they include. Um, so they can look at, you know, does the effect of being a Latter-day Saint differ between gay and straight kids? And what they found in, in layman's terms was uh, that uh, LGBT kids, LGBT Latter-day Saint kids benefited more from being Latter-day Saints uh, relative to being non-religious than straight kids did. Um, so this, this kind of finding, if it's, if it's true and if it could be replicated and borne out, is, is really striking uh, because it says not only uh, do our kids have lower rates of suicide, both gay and straight kids, but it's possible that the church is actually having this differential benefit for gay kids in particular. Um, and I think, I don't want to make that claim uh, as a, it, that's a, you know, only provisional and that, with all the caveats that come with social science research, uh, you know, all kinds of, of caveats. But what I think we can take away from the, this new research is um, the problem isn't particular to the church. And in fact, uh, we seem to have lower rates than other groups. Um, and also that the narrative that has been out there for years now uh, and, and spread by national media without verification very irresponsibly uh, is really implausible. It's, it's very unlikely to be true. Um, and really, there's no reason that anyone should have to believe that it's true over other narratives. And I think we should uh, spend some time looking at other um, explanations for the rise in youth suicides in Utah, but across the country. Um, you know, we could look at is secularization driving some of this? Uh, is, is progressive ideology, which is very popular among white educated people these days, is that driving depression and suicidality? There's some uh, some evidence for that. Is, I'm sure that's uh, going to go over swimmingly. I'm sure nobody will be upset by that one at all, right? Yeah, yeah. But 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 look, this is yeah. a scientific question, right? This is not this is not about trying to, to to drive a wedge or to make people mad. This is this is a scientific question, and there's reason to pursue the question, right? And, and, wanna... and we shouldn't we shouldn't you know claim this in national media without verification and say that it's the truth. But it is something worth looking into. We should, you know, as we're right. doing research, we should consider it. Well, and now it's like a, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. One of the things that we used to get a lot uh, initially when um, the issue of uh, LDS, LGBT youth uh, was coming up more and more is that people would tell us, your church leaders are telling things to these kids that are shaming them and that are driving them to this kind of thing without any evidence of what it is they were actually telling them. Uh, lots of assumptions that it was all shame-based and it was driving them to do this and that. And um, we we really copped a lot from the, the, the community saying that you need to train church leaders to be better at how they do this. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the narrative that, that existed for a while with us. And I think it's lost a lot of steam um over the, over time but it was one that we were all the time fighting about you need to change or teach your church leaders to do this differently it's so interesting that you say that mark because i had a and to be clear i have a i i have a good relationship with this person i trust them and so so somebody on on twitter is a friend of mine and reached out to me and said hey i have a student can you look out for them they're they're really upset about something i said absolutely like what can i do um, and, and basically it was, they're in a really bad place because a professor said something really awful. And I said, well, what happened? Tell me all about it. And I, you know, it was just trying to make sure they were okay. I got down to it and it was a, it was a recitation of something from the family proclamation. Mm. Now to be clear, it's okay if you disagree with that. Like I, I, that's fine. Right. It's even okay if you disagree with that BYU-Idaho, if it puts you in a bad mental space to have somebody repeat something that is like a pretty big, obvious deal for us yeah. as a faith, 
at BYU-Idaho, where you've chosen to go, that's, that, that, that's a little bit different in my mind. And we're not preaching a gospel of resilience to these folks. We're not telling them they are strong, that they have the capacity to disagree with people, and that's okay. And like, that is part of this that I think is really um, concerning to me. Tommy, you were, you were very um, kind in the way that you said this. I, I remember seeing around this time, around 2015, somebody said, if you know somebody who's committed suicide, please put their name in this Google Doc. Now, my basic question was, okay, I'm sure that these are, there are real cases out there. No one is denying that. And until the number is zero, by the way, I am not happy. I'm not complacent until we go into, like, this is a plague. We need to take this seriously. No one would suggest otherwise. And at the same time, I looked at this and said, someone's going to come up with some crazy inflated number because there's no checks on this. This is, this is a Google Doc, right? This, is, this isn't a peer-reviewed study. And so when people came out who, who are not members of the church, who are themselves gay, who are saying, guys, this doesn't make any sense. Like, we're watching this. We're keeping an eye on it. That's not what happened. And again, to be clear, if it was what happened, we should take that seriously. We should listen yeah. to that. We should try and do better. <clears throat> I just don't think that that's accurate. And in fact, <clears throat> um, I, I don't think it's just a matter of, of truth. I believe in academic truth and looking at things clearly and all of that matters to me. My concern with this specific narrative is that, you know, if I talk to an LGBT student of mine, they kind of have the narrative written in their head. It's like, okay, well, first, you know, struggle to find out who I am, realize I'm gay, come out of the closet, suffer depression, and then maybe if it's really bad, I'll, I'll, I'll be suicidal. And it's like, we have to fix that narrative. That narrative is incredibly damaging. It's not based in truth. It's not based in accuracy from any of the data that I have seen. I'm certain that there are people who have been through that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. But I am very concerned that we are going to start... Um, we are going to start perpetuating a problem in the in the name of defending a narrative that just doesn't hold up to the evidence. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and and that is what the feeling you got so often when this narrative was so popular was that people weren't so interested in, in figuring out you know why this was happening and what was happening exactly uh, as they were and in, in just having a something to I don't like the word weaponize, but just a weapon to use, against the, to use against the church. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as you said, and I, I think it's totally true, we, there is a problem, and it is a problem that um, more of our, our kids are committing suicide than in the past by not experiencing suicidality. It's a problem that uh, gay kids are about twice as likely, both within the church and out, um, to, to experience this. Uh, and we've got to do what we can uh, you know, to help this not happen. But I think we also have to, to look around and say, whatever you know, we're doing in, in our society, it's not working. You know, it's, it's getting worse, if anything. It's not getting better. And a lot of these attempts to just make this one-dimensional narrative out of it and not, you know, not use data, but just sort of use these theories about how conservative religion is supposed to affect people, uh, how, is, how is that helping uh, to reduce it to that? And it might even be making it worse. Um, you know, if, if kids are going to be benefited by staying in the church and you're pulling kids out of the church in an attempt to, to help them, I mean, you could be making things worse, right? So it's, it's, it's really crucial that we, we just try to get to the facts. And, and as far as, you know, narratives and, and things that we tell kids, you know, I think a narrative that tells kids that if you feel discomfort or grief or sadness in connection with your sexuality, that's because people don't like you. That's because your family and your church hate you. That's why you feel sad. That is a really, really big claim and a really sad and destructive message. And, and generally speaking, I don't think it's true, uh, obviously. Um, but if, if that's the narrative kids are hearing, I mean, that, that could have harmful effects. I don't know for sure. But, but uh, I, I, really uh, when, when I was in Italy, I mentioned this at the beginning, and this is a, a perfect segue to kind of wrap things up. Um, I recently saw a, a little meme that was pretty entertaining. <clears throat> it has a kid with his head down and he's walking by and three of his friends all say hi to him. Um, and he, he doesn't pay any attention to what they're saying. And he gets home and he says, it was awful, mom. Nobody likes me. Right. And it's, and to be clear, there are real instances of bullying. I'm not suggesting others. I'm talking about my experience here. I'm not trying to put my experience on that of an LGBT youth. It felt like people didn't like me because I was a little bit different until I realized that I was just a little bit different and that was okay. And when I started actually looking at the interactions I was having with individuals, people weren't actually being that unkind. Right. And that was actually really important was to dissociate, like to, to tell the difference between my experience of what I was feeling and what their motives were and what their intentions were. Um, and when they did make fun of me, it wasn't 
because of my particular faith. It was because I was very religious and those two things are very different, right? Like, and that's okay to have that conversation. Um, I think training people to see any feeling of negativity coming from anybody else as intentional bullying is probably one of the, the least helpful things that we could do um, for these kids. And I think that's, that's an important part of the conversation. Jacob, I, I saw you on mute a second ago. Did you have a comment you wanted to make? Yeah, it's just a closing thought for me. And, and all of you spoke to this powerfully, but we don't just tell stories, we live them. There, this isn't just some armchair academic discussion. How we interpret the world becomes our life. And so um, all these narratives we've described are not just us saying, how dare you, you know, <laughs> how dare you criticize my state and my religion? I'm going to defend it at all costs. Like, I, I don't think it's, um, it seems clear that each of these narratives has contributed, like if you live them out, it's going to estrange you from not only Utah, but from the Church of Christ, from the, from the body of Christ. And that's, that is a big reason why we're passionate. You know, we're not just neutral observers looking at the data. That matters to all of us. And it hurts my heart. I think you said it so well, Tom. So there is a standpoint we're coming from. And it's that, yeah, if there's truth to any of this, we want to do better. We want to repent. <laughs> But when a narrative becomes so toxic that you download it and live it out and it makes you more suicidal and less likely to even want to be around. Some of my uh, friends who have left the church, it's like, it's like they don't want to even talk to me or hear from me. And I'm like, what happened to you? And of course, these same people have a narrative that they are the ones that have accepted what the research says, right? That's, that's, John DeLynn 101, like he, his narrative is like, well, if you face the evidence, you got to follow the evidence. And these things we've talked about tonight are part of that, like in the name of, so at the very least, even if people don't agree with our analyses, at, at least we're um, saying clearly there's different ways to approach this. And, uh, and let's, let's come together with people that don't share this faith anymore and say, let's have a bigger conversation than we've been having. Thanks for ha having us on, Ben. This has been great. This has been absolutely great. Well, let me, let me just <clears throat> add one other thought. Um, I'm sure Tom has never experienced this, but um, I have some friends um, on the left who are very pro-science, and that's how they explain it to me. Um, and that's why they believe that global warming is a serious issue, as do I. That's why they believe that immigration is important and good, as do I. Um, and that's why they believe masks and vaccines are important, as do I. All of that is great. And then I bring up the minimum wage and the yelling commences, right? And uh, or I bring up free trade or I bring up any number of economic or the deficit, right? Or, or all of these things. Um, <clears throat> I am not suggesting that economics tells us what our politics should be. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that most of the time, and this is human, this is not something that the left does. The right does it all the time too, right? The reality is that all of us grasp for the narrative that sounds most defensible in the moment. And when the science is on our side or the science is on our side, we're happy to run with it. But when somebody challenges that, then, then we ascribe to them bad, bad motives, bad values. When somebody says, hey, I'm not totally sure about the LGBT suicide narrative. Like I, I want to dig into this data. The response is, what's wrong with you? How could you even challenge that? What, what kind of cold and feeling horrible person are you? Instead of, hey, maybe they're looking because there's a reason. Maybe there might be some problems with that narrative. Maybe that's happening. Maybe there are things about this that we can peel back the layers on and actually do some good because of. Um, and in this case, it's not just that that narrative is a little bit off. It's also that community support is really important for LGBT youth. It's also that having faith experiences is important to them in their own right. And that's okay to say, even if it's a conservative faith, even if it's a sexually conservative faith, right? Um, and those are things that, that can be discussed deliberately. I think, Jacob, you said it really well. I, I am defensive of my state, but I'm not going to let that defensiveness dictate what I say to the national media without being checked. That's the difference. And if there's hard, cold facts that I need to, I need to square with, then that's hard, but I'm going to try my best to square with the facts as they are on the ground. Um, so thank you all so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. Um, I, I, I just want to give one quick check. Is there anybody that has something burning in their pocket that they, they need to say really quickly? I do have one thought. Um, I Go think, for it, uh, 
a blessing of being in this sort of disliked uh, minority religion um, is that we we're forced to hold ourselves to a higher bar. You know, we aren't going to be able to get our talking points out into the media on no verification uh, that make us look good. And so we, we've got to, you know, we have to clear a high bar in order to enter a discourse. And that's, that's good for us. You know, it forces us to, to improve and, and think hard and, and have these sort of bulletproof as much as possible <laughs> arguments and not overstate our case. And I, I think I've, I've benefited from that. I think that's a fantastic point and a perfect note to end on. The best way that we can benefit the world is by pursuing truth. Um, well, thank you all so much for being here. This has been a delight. Radical Civility is, is produced by uh, Nick Reese. I used to say Ben Piccini, but that's not true anymore. I have a producer, which is really fun. Um, it is not sponsored by any of our employers or the Church of Jesus Christ or anybody else because it's not sponsored by anybody. We have three Patreon subscribers. So view us on Patreon. We need help. Um, and we love producing this content. So if you like it, then please feel free to share it. Um, and come back to us uh, again soon. So thank you, everybody. And we will talk. Oh, and I forgot to mention, we are now officially a project of Public Square Magazine, which is super fun. And I always forget to say that now at the beginning. So um, thank you to the, to the good people there. Um, with that, we will talk to you next time. <laughs>